We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time. Tractor Time is brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, Editorial Director for Acres USA, and today we're talking with Mimi Castile. She's someone I met at the Acres EcoAg Conference last month. She's an Oregon winemaker who's fast becoming one of the leading voices in the regenerative agriculture movement, and it's no exaggeration to say she totally blew my mind. But before we get to that, a word from our sponsor. You are listening to the Tractor Time Podcast. We are proud to be sponsored by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers and homesteaders. BCS is often mistaken for just a rototiller, but with gear-driven transmissions and dozens of professional quality implements, they truly make superior pieces of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS two-wheel tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability every farm needs. With PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, chippers and shredders, snow throwers, even a utility trailer and a high-pressure irrigation pump, BCS America can supply tools you need to get jobs done across the farm and the homestead. Even on large farms where a four-wheel tractor is a necessity, BCS two-wheel tractors will tackle jobs that simply can't be done with larger machines, from mowing steep slopes and along pond banks to working soil and high tunnels and hoop houses. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments and watch videos of BCS in action. Hey, it's Ben again. So, Mimi Castile. I hadn't heard of her before, but a longtime friend of Acres USA, Mark Sturges, who calls me from time to time to tell me he's mailing me a poem that he just wrote or a box of apples from his orchard, told me I just had to talk to her for the podcast. Mark was a wine seller for many years before becoming the underground compost king of the Pacific Northwest, and one of his compost clients included Mimi's parents, who own and operate Bethel Heights Vineyard in Salem, Oregon. Mark knows wine and he knows agriculture, so when he talks, I listen. For more on Mark, Google the 2015 story on him at Craftsmanship Quarterly. It's a great read, and I'll link to it in the show notes. So, Mark told me Mimi was doing really interesting things at Hopewell Vineyard, which is located in Oregon's Eola Amity Hills. So, at the EcoAg Conference in December, I was thrilled to sit down in a cavernous room next to a noisy escalator at the Hyatt in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I did a little prep before the interview, of course, reading a handful of feature stories that had been written about Mimi Castile over the last few years. But I wasn't prepared for how eloquently and brilliantly she would speak, not just about wine, but agriculture and land use in general. I was truly blown away. As you'll hear, her Beyond Organic Farm, and that's really what it is, it's a farm, is singular within the American wine world. It's not your typical vineyard with its neat and tidy rows. Instead, it's a dynamic ecosystem that incorporates livestock, welcomes in wild animals, eschews industrial inputs, and produces prized Pinot Noirs. And for this work, Mimi was recently named the Wine Person of the Year by Imbibe Magazine. She grew up on her parents' farm, and winemaking is truly in her blood, but so are wild landscapes, the ones she drew nourishment and meaning from when she was a botanist for the Forest Service. She left that job in 2005 to work at her family's vineyard and eventually started her own at an old Christmas tree farm. Although it might be surprising coming from a former Forest Service employee, she believes that the world won't be saved by wilderness areas, 
but by completely re-envisioning how we grow our food. One note on the interview, I miss here Mimi during our conversation. I'll just blame it on the escalator. But at any rate, in the interview, she says the phrase truth and place. And I persistently and stubbornly keep referring to the concept as time and place. She was too polite to correct me, and I don't think it really hurts the interview, but I just want you to know that I know. Without further ado, here's my interview with Mimi Castile, captured live at the 2019 EcoAg Conference this past December. Hello, this is Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA Magazine. I'm here with Mimi Castile at the EcoAg Conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome, Mimi. Thank you, Ben. I would like to start by having you describe Hopewell Vineyard. Where is it and what would you see as you walk through it? Okay, so Hopewell is my farm. It is a vineyard, but it's many other things. It's in the Eola Amity Hills of the Willamette Valley in Western Oregon. And I would say foundationally, Hopewell is a teaching farm we set out to, rather I set out to find a fairly degraded piece of land because one of the reasons I came back to farming was a realization that I had when I was working in wildlands on, on public lands about how the deterioration of the privately held land base is at the heart of the deterioration that we're seeing in our public lands as well. And since the privately held land base is so vast and what we've set back is so insignificant in comparison, we will not do anything to protect those areas, those areas that restore us, that we retreat to, unless the privately held land base considers it their primary goal to restore what is degraded. So Hopewell was previously under Christmas tree rotations, so fairly intensive conventional agriculture. And we inherited all the things that go with a piece of land that's basically being abandoned for not being productive anymore. And that might be terrifying to most, but one of my um, I guess one of my very hard lines is that in this moment in time, there is no excuse for removing more habitat in order to make productive agriculture happen. There's more than enough footprint that can be restored to feed the world many times over, even if we do continue this ridiculous expansion of our population. So Hopewell is habitat under restoration. It's reestablishment of habitat in our headlands. So the the vineyard itself um, out of 80 acres is only about 25 planted under vine. And then we, we have one rule about not breaking the ground. We're trying to minimize the disturbance pattern as much as possible. And then we're reintegrating habitat everywhere. So we're trying to tie together the wildlife corridors and put a really intentional trophic structure back onto the agricultural landscape and then let people come and see how we're not failing economically. Our product is very high quality and 
we're living a very good life and the headspace for improvement on a degraded or potentially abandoned piece of land is much greater than when you remove habitat and then you put agriculture there. You may well produce something very high quality for a period of time, but if you take a degraded piece of land and improve it, the benefit to all is so much greater. And so I see, I see great opportunity there. And, you know, somebody has to take that risk first. And since I sign my own paycheck or don't, I feel like I can take risks that some of my colleagues or friends can't. You mentioned the phrase trophic structure. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that? Sure. So my background is in biology and specifically forest ecosystems and forest biology. And a trophic structure is really, I mean, the simplest way to describe it is what a food web really means is the sort of codependent and interconnected, co-evolved communities of plants and animals and microorganisms that happen specifically in a place in response to the abiotic factors that happen to be there. And I'm sort of obsessed with the way landscapes evolve with life and how life continues to recreate landscapes in response to the questions that are posed in a moment and how if we if we paid attention just to the things that were there when we got there and with wine it's particularly important because we we really pat ourselves aggressively on our backs about being the I guess the guiding light for truth and place but the first thing that most people do now is remove all of the things Mm -hmm. that built that place and then what your grapes are able to express is really just the influences of those abiotic factors Mm -hmm. because the, the entire community has changed in that moment when you remove the habitat when you rip a six foot shank three different ways and apply six tons to the acre of agricultural lime. So by trophic structure, I mean every layer of that ecosystem. We're looking for intentional redundancy so that Mm -hmm. the resilience of the system increases over time and trying to minimize the disturbance that we put on that um, as much as possible. And I think that it's a, it's a moving bar. You know, every time we eliminate a pass in the vineyard or replace that with an animal pass or whatever, you just raise that bar one more time Mm -hmm. because there's no, there's no point in considering a, um, a destination (laughs) Mm -hmm. because we, we just have so far to go. So you mentioned this notion of aggressively patting ourselves on the back for time and place. And so uh, am I incorrect or correct in assuming that that has something to do with the term that gets thrown around continuously in the wine world, which is terroir? Yes. You're avoiding that word, maybe maybe intentionally, maybe not. Um, But that is the word that you hear probably most often when you're talking about wine, particularly high-end wines that sort of connoisseurs um, appreciate uh, talking about a sense of place and, as you say, time. Um, are we be, being sold a story that maybe isn't 100% true when people throw that term around for a whole 
span of wines? The short answer is yes, absolutely. You're being told a story. Wine is 100% about stories. And I, I would never want to throw anybody under the bus, especially people who work the land. I think that everybody who, well, most winemakers who are telling the story of their place and talking about terroir believe what they're saying even to themselves. And what's interesting about my path to wine, I get where my path back to wine, is that when I was young, I grew up on a vineyard that was very early times in that region. So there was no real wine being made in Oregon before 1960. And so we were sort of part of that early stage of pioneer winemakers and nobody knew anything about viticulture was all a bunch of ex-academics who were primarily hippies and wanted to live off the land and wine is gripping to people who are very philosophical and very thoughtful about wanting to live off the land and so the early vineyards there were really laying down on wild nature. And that was my formative experience was, you know, my, my family lived on a farm, but it was not the farm that I saw. It was the place that I saw. And then when I left to work in wildlands, um, and you know, in biology and what I thought was going to be my career working in the backcountry, I, you know, I had all these realizations about how the way we grow food and the way we do agriculture was, leading to the death of these places that I so desperately wanted to live my life in. And then when I came back to wine, everybody had sort of gotten woke, I guess, to the way to do viticulture um, more efficiently, more scientifically, more reductively scientific, I guess, is how Mm -hmm. I would say that. And so nobody thought they were doing things less in tune with truth and place or terroir, as you say. But that's how we lose it. I mean, it's because we think we're getting smarter. And every time we think we're getting smarter, or we're learning something about a specific process. We lose the, the larger picture. And so when I came back to wine, one of the first things that I noticed, it was early. I came back to my family's estate. They had very much changed their practices to kind of get modern. Mm -hmm. And we traveled to Burgundy together and we tasted through some of the greatest cellars in the world and tasted their amazing vintages of their Mm -hmm. sort of best examples of what they did. And then we would go out into the vineyard and they would, and it was bare dirt and they would pick up that bare dirt and, and show it to me and talk about how this is what our wine you know, this is what makes our wine. This is what births our wine. And because of what I was coming out of in in the forestry part of my, it was a shocking moment for me because I, I mean, there was no part of me that felt like that resonated with what I know about plants and what I know about landscapes and what I know about how a plant could possibly tell a story about mm-hmm. a place. But it was so clear that that was really what they believed, that if it, was, it felt heretical the first time I asked a biodynamic vigneron in bone, why do you cultivate every row if 
you believe that your plants are tapping into this soil, how are they doing that communication? And it was, you know, these roots, they touched this, they touched these rocks. And again, you know, I was sort of in that moment where am I going to challenge this person who is way famous in the wine world? And um, that put me very stolidly on a path of, you know, now I'm, of being this iconoclast. Yeah, and it's it's not an easy role to play, but I think that all of us, you know, we we must be constantly questioning our practices now in agriculture in everything because the way that we've learned to do this is to have completely turned our back on what we know is the way life creates life and the way that life wants to perpetuate life by sort of maintaining this controlled disequilibrium and these cycles of nutrients that allow this planet to be green and blue instead of dead and red. Mm-hmm. Um, we can be so scientific to the, to the molecular point and miss, miss the entire universe in that process. Well, it seems kind of like an odd concept to care about place and time when it applies to a particular luxury good but where else in our sort of culture or western culture as as it were do we really care about time and place and if i'm hearing you correctly i feel like you're wanting to take the emphasis um away from places expressed through the wine itself and more about caring about the place itself. Exactly. I don't, I think so much more about the everything else at Hopewell than I think about the vines themselves. And that's not to say I don't think about them constantly, but it's a, it's a mania that is particular to my way of doing things, but it really is the, the education I have benefited from in just watching the return of real truth in place that I can taste, that resonates with me, that I can smell, that I can experience fully organoleptically is really been through the facilitation of the other processes that have to be, you know, very integrated when you're trying to restore a particular place. And every year that we make improvements or we see improvements in the ecosystem overall, in the habitat areas, in the return of species that were not there before, it just keeps getting better. And so that informs the process. And really the vines, I mean, this is an ancient Linnea that came screaming out of the Cretaceous. It doesn't need a lot of help, really, or it shouldn't. We've coddled it into sort of a genetic version of itself that works well for our very controlled environments. But I think that when when those plants are actually allowed to coexist in a real ecosystem, that's the only time when they can be that vessel for time and place. And right now for me, I mean, time, this is a particular version of time. It's going to be my time because our time period is so short, but it's so much about the impact that we're now, that, you know, that we've wrought, that 
the time piece of wine right now is a lot less interesting to me than the place part of wine because right now our time is mostly about a rapidly an unprecedented warming of my region that might even make these varieties obsolete in a few years. So I have seen that both time and place in wine are enhanced by this way of doing things. And I'm sure I'm still screwing it up somehow, but my primary responsibility is to every other living thing in my watershed. And so everything that I do on the farm and with my family, et cetera, is about trying to raise the function of the piece that's under our care. And so functional ecosystem, not just do you have these plants? Do you not have any weeds? I mean, that those questions are really not interesting to me. Like, are you cycling your nutrients? Or, you know, is, is there a real function that is improving here? And that's that's the that's the goal. And I want our listeners to understand that this isn't just about being organic or being biodynamic so you can create a value-added product that commands a higher price, mm-hmm. although maybe it does. I don't know. But this is really about something deeper than that. That's not why you're in this game. It doesn't maybe even particularly make sense to, to grow grapes in order to sort of prom- promote regeneration on the plot of land that you oversee. But talk, talk a little bit about your motivations and, and how what you're doing isn't just outside of the mainstream, it's outside of, it's the fringe of the fringe. Mm-hmm. Right. If, if, if that's accurate. It's totally accurate. I'm, I'm basically a walking existential crisis. It's, uh, you know, the <laughs> wine piece of this for me, I mean, wine, wine infected me at a very early age. There were, you know, anybody who loves wine has had a wine that changed their mind. And I've had lots of wines that didn't do anything for me, but the one handful of wines that has actually made me panic in a good way is a is why I do wine. And I make a very small amount of wine because I do have kind of a, um, I have some issues about what wine is doing in the world and what wine means in the world right now. It's a pretty, pretty heavy impact. I mean, it's a very small slice of the agricultural pie, but in terms of the removal of habitat and the sort of pretension around a value-added product that's really only for a very small slice of humanity. The reason I do wine is, one, because it has changed my mind, but two, it's because wine has a very unique capacity to start a conversation that people don't have over really awesome kale or even really awesome sauerkraut. It is, it has done this for time immemorial. And I want to use that opportunity to talk about not wine. So I want to use that time with people whose minds have been changed by drinking a particular wine to talk about the really awesome kale that they should be eating right. and what what it would mean to design integrated food web agriculture that supports communities and supports 
living ecosystems. So that is, I mean, that is why I do wine and it, it's why I, I very carefully think about where that wine needs to go and who that wine should touch and how it should touch people mm-hmm. because there's no part of me that wants to scale this up. There's no part of me that wants to make a lot more wine. Um, one of the greatest joys in my life is, you know, going and putting the hands on every barrel and, you know, I get to spend 85% of my time in the field still, and I'm not holding a clipboard and telling other people how to make my wine. I don't, not, I don't want to dismiss that, but this is, for me, this is about changing how we use private lands because I don't really believe in that term either. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a temporary occupier. Just because I think that the concept of ownership has really facilitated the worst things that we do. Um, if we if we had a CPS, a Child Protection Services for landscapes, things would look a lot different. Right. I mean, I feel like I feel like abuses should should trump ownership. And there should be standards for that. And I don't, I mean, I don't like the idea of a police state, but I would like to think that if my community felt that my impact on the land was a negative effect on the water that they're drinking, on the food that they're eating, that they would call me out on that because this land is their land. This land is my land. This, you know, whole concept of ownership is at the heart of the, of the wrongs that we do. Mm-hmm. And when I look at my babies and my animals and see the water that passes through the property, those are all the things that I take very seriously, my responsibility for those things and the treatment of those processes and the facilitation of the processes that make healthy versions of those life forms. You can't own that. You can participate and... That's, that's why I have issues with the idea of ownership. Right. What would you want to tell people who are used to going to their local grocery store and picking up an $8 bottle of wine and taking it home, having it for dinner? What do you want them to know about mm-hmm. the, wine, the wine industry? I guess, first and foremost, I would, I would just sort of start with why are you buying that bottle of wine? What What is it about buying a bottle of wine or having a particular bottle of wine at your table that's important to your dining experience? And if the answer is it relaxes me and it makes me feel better, then I would say, you know, there are, there are many ways to have wine at the table. And there are lots of choices that, you know, you can make terms of what kind of wine you want to buy but the way wine is made in the world right now is primarily an industrial model they're especially at a particular price point and I don't want to be dismissive of that because I think a lot of people would say if you don't have a you know if you don't have the bottom of the pyramid then there's no way for people of a certain income level to experience what you're talking about I agree with that but I also think that wine is a little bit, it's a little bit like art. 
but because it's a natural product because it comes from the earth we should take that artistry a little bit more seriously and consider whether or not it can be what it's meant to be at an industrial scale it is hard for me to accept the thomas kincaid version of a matisse and that's because to me the the magic of wine and when a wine can really adapt your table experience to something magical to something where even the interaction that you're having with the person across the table is not just enhanced but becomes more significant becomes more important that that is about a, a mutual appreciation for something that is unique in the world and therefore empirically could not be 10 million bottles at a time. It's really about being thoughtful, I think, about what what is it that you love about wine? Is it just that you can toss back three glasses and go to bed quickly? Or is it that it makes it possible to talk to your mother-in-law for more than an hour at a time? I mean, if that's your motivation, then there's probably a better beverage to buy. Right. If your motivation is to experience a region or even a, a three-hectare vineyard that's in a region that you'll never have the opportunity to visit, I used to say this all the time about my family's estate. The reason we make the estate wine so that it's labeled estate is because most people are never going to have the opportunity to visit. But in as deep a sensory way, we want to communicate the majesty of what we felt when we first got here. Mm-hmm. That there's something that can only happen here. And that's why you plant your flag in one place or the other. And that's what you're trying to capture And that that's a moment in time that's afforded by a particular 365 days before that. And there's a human connection there that you're this sort of conduit for whatever many other forces are at play. And that's, I don't know, there's there's really nothing else that I grow that has that same Mm -hmm. captivating power. But it, it doesn't, it doesn't really scale to the two buck chuck. Right. And, you know, some people, even if they have the best motivations for drinking wine, maybe they read um, a story in the newspaper that uh, red wine contains antioxidants and polyphenols that are good for you and make you live longer. That's a nice story. (laughs) Right, right. But is it true? I mean, if the wine industry is largely an industrial process, if labeling is so opaque and many vineyards are using industrial chemicals uh, to manage these vineyards, what are we really drinking? Mm-hmm. And in your opinion, is it in fact a healthful thing to drink? Primarily, no. And I would also say on top of that, I mean, alcohol is poison. We all know this. It's not news. I think that, you know, in homeopathic dosages wine can be medicine 
in the same way that food can be medicine, especially when it comes to the secondary plant metabolites. So, so just, you know, sort of to call out the one that you're probably referencing, resveratrol, mm-hmm. you, you would have to drink gallons of wine a day to get the benefits of that particular compound. Um, and so it's a, it's a marketing technique to speak to a particular health benefit of wine and it's effective and it's sexy because everybody wants to drink more wine, but it's not, it's, it's not true. I think that when wine is healthy, it's really about a dynamic and living organism basically because it lives its own life and it evolves over time when it's made in the way that I referenced earlier, where it's more of an artistry, an interaction where you would not, I mean, we'd be blasphemous to add the things that get added now. I mean, things like super purple. I don't even, it's like, (laughs) what is that? What is that? Exactly. You don't, nobody wants to know what that is and nobody wants to put that in their body, especially if they think that they're buying something that's supposed to be good for them. So, I mean, I think wine has been afforded a lot of space to tell the stories that have captivated us for centuries and it deserves that space i mean as a as an alchemical process and as an as a beverage that is at once natural and and art when it's done right it is it is all of those things and it is medicinal i do believe that but i think the medicine part of it is more about the conversations that you have than it is about a particular interaction with your body. Because the fact is, you know, most of us don't get healthier drinking several glasses of wine, but we do feel better. And I do think that in terms of the nutrient density of the raw materials, it's all over the charts. I mean, there there's wine at the very industrial side of the spectrum that is just vacant and poisonous. And then there's the other end where wine is being grown in the way that landscapes form and you really they're not even really the same thing. It's mm-hmm. sort of like we can't even talk about them in the same space. Because what with that very small voice of a place can do for people is make connections that they just can't otherwise make. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just hearing you talk about this, I just sort of picture like grass fed uh, grapes over here and then little CAFO grapes over, over on the other side. Is that sort of even a, a useful analogy? I mean, you mentioned alcohol itself being, um, poisonous to the human body in large doses, and that everyone knows that. But um, are there other things in wine that are ending up in bottles of wine that you get at the grocery store or at your local liquor, liquor store that are just as equally toxic? For sure. I mean, at every systemic chemical that is used in a system or is in the groundwater or the water table has access to the finished product. And the fact that we ferment means there's even more opportunity for 
interesting chemical reactions to take place. And so just for example, you know, even if, even if you think you're buying a sustainably grown wine, if that sustainability program allows for the use of systemic chemistries or irrigation or lots and lots of other things that happen in the winery that nobody asks about, those things all do end up in wine. Mm -hmm. I mean, anything that has access to the plant systemically will end up in the reproductive tissue. And even though that goes through a fermentation process, those things don't disappear. They interact. A lot of them can actually make fermentation harder. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you end up imbibing all of those things. And so knowing the agricultural practices in play is important. And then also asking about the winemaking process itself, because I think, you know, I'm, I'm always at risk of losing all of my friends, but <laughs> in a winery, um, there are bags of chemicals. Most of the wineries around the world have bags of things that they don't, you know, they don't talk about. And right. a lot of these things are naturally derived tannins from wood processing or whatever, but they all, they all change the raw material in some way. And if what we're really trying to do is nakedly be the vessel of terroir, then those things are more about a, a winemaker stamp than they are about truth in place. And I just think a more honest conversation for a consumer is in order here because you can grow grapes organically, biodynamically, or whatever practices you want, but then the winemaker has to decide how to steward that through the winemaking process. And that can include a lot of other things along the way. And that conversation has not been in the light because wine has been given a free pass or a lot of fermented beverages have been given a free pass in terms of ingredient labeling and accountability. And frankly, the way the grapes are grown and the accountability afforded by certain certification programs just isn't going to cut it. If you want to know that the wine that you're putting in your body is actually healthy. I mean, even the question of dry farming, there's a lot of ways to cheat that system too. I do want to talk about sort of your advocacy within mm -hmm. the, the wine industry. Um, where, where, I mean, what do you want to see change? And, and, it, and, and it seems hearing you talk that it's not just about changing the wine industry. It's really about land management in general. However, you are a voice within within the wine world. And what do you want to see change now? Mm -hmm. What do you want to see change in five years, 10 years, and into the future? Good, good question. So I, I think that as a, as a luxury product, the accountability should be higher, <laughs> if, if anything. It should be much higher. It should be the highest standard. And as an industry that is often pointed to as being the sort of progressive leading edge of sustainable agriculture, the fact that so much of what we do in the vineyard is kind of rote at this point, it's um, a lot of a lot of cultivation, a lot of, you know, sort of fungicide 
standardized programs and zero tolerance, sort of a, what I call a Western med- medicine tolerance of the um, things like in my region, powdery mildew or in France, powdery mildew and downy mildew, but things that are considered to be pests and especially now, you know, sort of the emerging pests and diseases that are coming with a closing, I guess, a closing ecosystem and a, a very dangerous and volatile climate that our standards are actually getting worse because we think we must allow ourselves more space to defend these precious little vines that we've put in the ground and it's such a high value product that we should be allowed to do that. When, if anything, we should be the ones leading the way towards landscape resilience through our agricultural practices. So giving ourselves less space, if anything, and figuring out the ways to do this differently so that disease resistance is built into the plant. It's not something that you buy in a bag. Um, and I think we have to we have to be honest about how flavor develops. We have to be honest about how <laughs> what minerality means and what we think we mean when we say minerality and how we think those minerals even make it into a wine. And then, you know, what are these farms supposed to look like? Mine looks very messy and often criticized for the messiness of my my vineyard. Um, and that aesthetic that we've applied to this particular type of agriculture drives our practices in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Like people want to see those tidy little super tight rows of green surrounded by brown and cultivation I'm not, I don't want to demonize people who ever do any type of cultivation, but especially in a permanent agricultural system, tillage should be something that we take very seriously, that we do really only when we think it's necessary and called for and is facilitating some process that is otherwise not happening. And I would argue in most cases in temperate regions, we shouldn't have to do it at all. And I also think that wine is not an appropriate crop for a lot of places that it's being grown, Mm -hmm. especially when it's very resource intensive. And that has made me very unpopular. But what are some of those regions? Well, anywhere that's a desert. (laughs) I mean, I understand the fascination with geology and wine and how those two things can connect. But at what cost is it really important to have a wine region in every corner of the world when we desperately need to figure out how to feed people back to health and how to recreate ecosystems that have been devastated and I don't know that wine is necessarily the the key that fits into that lock. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I know that that's not anybody's favorite answer, but I do think that we are trying to scale up wine to create a bottom of the pyramid, to create a Thomas Kincaid version that is the gateway drug for whatever. And I just reject it. I just do. I mean, unless those systems can be uh, 
improved to the point where they're actually a net benefit on the landscape, I feel like it's sort of an obvious blight, frankly, if it, if it's in a system that is otherwise closed and doesn't need inputs. Okay. But if you're bringing in everything, mm-hmm. literally, I, I just don't think it's appropriate. I'm curious how you define sort of your agricultural sort of philosophy. Like what informs it? Um, do you see what you're doing at Hopewell as a model for what should be done? Or do you see it more as like a mad scientist laboratory? Yes. Or maybe a little of both. <laughs> um, but I, I'm curious, like what, what are sort of the underpinning principles that you live by and, and farm by? Yeah. I mean, anybody who's worked in ecosystem science backcountry data collection. I mean, the the power of observation is probably the one tool that, you know, farmers lose track of. And to me, the the sort of observation of all the things that are happening in the farm environment, so in the ecosystem itself, that's what I'm watching. I mean, the 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 wine sort of follows, but are the trees healthy is the water clean i mean there there are processes that drive the health of a landscape and if those processes are fully functioning then you know kind of without having to think too hard about it everything does better and we can we i mean i think everybody in this space that you work in we all we all see that we all know that it's true but for the next level of person to come on board. So the person who's maybe a little bit resistant, but has a fairly open mind, you do have to have those places where the risk has been taken and the proof is in the product. And so I would never want to qualify myself as a model of anything, but I do think that we can create a place for everyone to learn. And there is a bit of mad scientist to that, but mostly it's that every time we, as a, as a force as agriculture, as a force makes a disturbance on the landscape, it immediately responds by trying to make, to repair itself at every level. Every level is trying to repair itself. And we keep placing ourselves usually right in the way of that repair process. And so, so much of the time, it's just about making an observation of a process that you're interfering in and just stepping away. (laughs) Do not touch the baby. And that's hard. I think that's hard because in agriculture, most of what we do is motivated by fear because it is, we're trying to create a controlled environment in an uncontrollable system. And we can, I think we can learn a lot just by accepting that we are going to have to embrace our utter dependency and our utter codependency in order to survive. And right now we're just still sort of thinking we're independent people operating on these little 
defined pieces of land and that era is dead. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think what I'm trying to do as quickly as possible is put things in place so that others can not necessarily even learn, but observe that it works and it can probably even work better. And there's a lot of opportunity to explore and get better if more people participated and we weren't so geographically separated by, um, you know, other practices and making those connections again, we could actually, we could change everything in a very short period of time. So I don't, I mean, I guess I I didn't really answer your question. It totally did. But to get a little more granular, I'm I'm really intrigued by um, how you use animals and wildlife um, in your operation. That's not something, whether you're organic or biodynamic, that many vendors are doing. Mm -hmm. In fact, I don't know, um, you would know, but I don't know of any others who are doing that. How does that work? Why did you decide to do that? And are there models out there that you've looked to uh, for guidance? Well, it's funny because it was actually at Acres uh, where I started just reaching out to some of the some of the presenters from you know livestock panels in the past um, were willing to talk to me about this crazy idea that I had of trying to integrate animals into the vineyard system. And it's not to say that animals haven't historically been a part of the vineyard system. I mean, they've pulled a lot of plows through vineyards for sure. But in terms of creating a biological feedback loop, um, that was very new ground and screwed it up a lot of ways (laughs) or did it wrong all the ways that it can possibly be done wrong. But got so much help from this community specifically that it was, it made me feel more emboldened to try things. And I mean, there's something about working with animals also that sort of brings into very fine focus how these regions with their particular histories and the life histories they're in co-evolved and that that coevolution is sort of what compelled you to identify that place as being somewhere that you wanted to make a wine from. And so it was very interesting to me to like look at actually the um, life history of the Willamette Valley and what the grazing patterns would have looked like. I mean, we didn't have, it was a bison. It was primarily, you know, like deer and elk. And how would you try to restore that ecosystem with using, you know, livestock in as close a mimicked way as possible? And so tried a whole lot of different animal systems and a whole lot of different grazing systems. And it was all about observing the responses not just in the the vineyard floor, but also in the flavors of the wine. And one of the one of the really interesting things along the way was, you know, when I first started allowing sheep to graze the the basil leaves, which is a little scary, requires a lot of supervision because a lot of um, I think people would find that terrifying. But we often pull those basil leaves anyway for airflow and to kind of keep the fruit exposed to sunlight. And 
the first wine that was made from the vines that were grazed where you know not just the floor was grazed but also the leaves were plucked by the by the sheep mouths themselves there was something really different and really compelling about that first wine and that even further emboldened me and so you know I think one of the problems with doing viticulture at a massive scale is that it eliminates your power of observation at a very fine scale. And those are the things that you would miss. And adding livestock to a trellised, a tightly trellised system is no small challenge, but it's been more than worth it. And I spent a lot of time on a tractor and I am not interested in spending any more time than I absolutely have to on a tractor. So I'm always looking at the ways, even if it's a little more labor intensive, because one of the pieces of this that I think is so critical is that we've locked ourselves into these lifestyles where we pay to be abused in a gym instead of living a life of dynamic movement because we call that unskilled labor when it is the freest and most creative way to express yourself thoroughly that I've ever experienced. And I've done a lot of jobs. Mm -hmm. And I can say without hesitation that there is nothing more nourishing than what it means to work on the land. Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody who calls that unskilled isn't going to have a very long conversation with me. Tell me the story of the most remarkable glass of wine you've ever had. Mm. Oh my gosh. Um, okay, well, I know exactly. I know exactly the wine. So I was visiting my importer in Alberta, Canada, of all places, and I had, you know, been doing things this way for some time and really hadn't connected with many producers in the world who were doing things in sort of a like-minded way. And my importer, we were having dinner one night and he wanted to open a bottle of wine. He's been saving it to have just this evening. And he told me it was Albarino and I was like, okay. Because I had not had a lot of Albarino in my life that I found particularly interesting or even worth maybe having more than like a half a glass of. Mm -hmm. And so he really built this up. And of course, I love him dearly and I didn't want to disappoint him with my reaction. So I was sort of talking myself into liking, loving the Albarino that he was going to show me. And mm -hmm. um, he said, no, this this is really, truly extraordinary. And you and the and the person who makes this wine are philosophically so aligned and he's pushing the envelope and doing doing things that people think are totally absurd mm -hmm. but it you taste this wine and anyway I'm just not going to talk about it anymore he actually said that I'm not going to talk about it anymore I just want you to I want you to taste the wine and he went so far as to leave the room while I was tasting the wine so that I could have a legitimate experience with it not influenced by him at all and I it, it was like somebody had plugged my face into a light socket. It was, it was so extraordinarily 
alive and electric that I pretty much decided I had never really had Albarino before. And the producer is Raul Perez, and he um, he makes extraordinary wines, but he does do things in a in a part of the world that is um, very dry, and he farms beautifully and he makes wine very deeply personally and I think that that's when wine is really special it is when somebody is so vulnerable in their process that it is really like I mean I've never written a book I've never you know I mean I've painted things but I've never like put them in a gallery or anything, but it, it is sort of like sending your children out into the world and having somebody say they're not pretty or they're stupid or I don't know. It's that crushing when you see somebody have a negative experience with your wine, if you've put yourself into it in that very vulnerable way. Mm-hmm. So you could just tell that that person who made that wine came to it so openly and so humbly Mm -hmm. that what happened was really the kind of magic that only happens every once in a while. Um, And I just want that experience for anyone who sits down with something that they've spent their hard money on, you know, especially if they think it's going to be good for them (laughs) or make them live longer. The French paradox. Um, That's what I hope wine can be. Well, thanks so much for taking time to talk with me. My pleasure. There you have it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tractor Time brought to you by Acres USA and BCS America. Subscribe to our channel on YouTube, iTunes, or anywhere podcasts are available. Also find us online at acresusa.com, ecofarmingdaily.com, and don't forget to subscribe to our monthly magazine. Thanks for listening and have a great week.